we would actually sort of say that a human life that had no grief or a human life in which someone managed to avoid grieving would not be a very good life. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. In this episode, we have author of a philosophical discussion about what is grief, Professor Michael Cholby. And we, in this episode, well, we're talking a lot about grief and grieving, and then there's and some death. discussions and death. death. We start talking death. about philosophy of death. Rudy turns out has some fear of dying that we learn about. No, no, no. That's first of all. We've always known about that. I've, I've told the audience that for years now that I'm going to yeah. transfer into a computer and live for at least 3 million years. So, Which is also a problem. That's also a problem. Problem, not problem. <laughs> I don't want you to say as if it came up on this episode. This is an ongoing theme. And maybe we uncovered some of the reasons of why that it, I might start thinking that's a ridiculous notion that I'm going to live forever. And some of the reasons why I think that way is fleshed out on this episode. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed this episode. I had not thought about grief as a philosophical topic, but Michael really delves into why it's necessary for us to talk about it and also what philosophy has to offer the subject of grief as opposed to psychology and theology. So I was really intrigued by his take on it. It's something we will all go through. It's something that we're all aware of, but for some reason... Wait, why are you shaking your head no? I am going to still try to transfer myself into a computer. That's why I'm waving my head. So when you say all, uh, you, mean, you mean the general all, but not including me. Well, you, will, you would experience more grieving because you would be outliving everybody else. I guess we did talk about that on the <laughs> Yeah, we talked about a lot. No, we did. We talked, yes, yes. We talked about the future of my grieving as well over the next several million years. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's really a lovely episode. It's so insightful. And I think that it can be helpful for anybody who is going through the grieving process. But at the same time, there's some joy in learning and thinking about this subject that maybe we hadn't thought about in this way. Okay, let's talk philosophy of grief. All right, Michael, welcome to the show. I would love sure. to know how you started this journey of writing a philosophical analysis of grief. Sure. Well, as you know, Gwendolyn, there's a course at Cal Poly Pomona on the philosophy of death and dying called Confrontations with the Reaper. I was teaching that course. I had been teaching that course for quite a long time, like eight or nine years. I taught it, I don't know, five or 30 times probably. I began to notice that when a lot of philosophers of death and dying about the issues that their field raises, they think in a very first personal way, right? They ask questions like, should I fear death? Would my death be bad for me? Will I survive death? And those are all, you know, important, interesting questions. But I began to wonder whether that's a bit almost solipsistic an approach to, to thinking about the significance of mortality in our lives. Most of us, well, not most us, that's, that's an understatement. All of us, right, uh, confront mortality, I think, first and foremost, through the deaths of others. You know, I've often had students tell me, you know, their first time really thinking about mortality is when they had a pet die, right? <laughs> that's like often an early experience. So I began, you know, just to explore whether philosophers had said very much about grief. And despite the fact that you would think philosophers would say something about grief, it's not really a topic that they have devoted a lot of attention to historically. It shows up a little bit, you know, like in ancient philosophy, Stoic schools, Epicurean schools, a little bit in like Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard, but it's kind of an orphaned topic for philosophers. It felt to me like a fertile ground for exploration. And since I first started writing on this about 
six or seven years ago, managed to get a few articles published, and I thought that there was enough there for me to put out a book that I think touches on many, though I would not dare to say all of the main philosophical questions that could be phrased. So the book will now be out both in the US and the UK in January. I'm wondering if one of the reasons it hasn't been tackled by philosophers is because it's in the realm of emotion. So as opposed to other arguments where you can come to some sort of a conclusion or you can have an syllogism that maybe philosophers have stayed away from it because it cannot yield that. Uh, that might have something to do with it. I do think that there's no doubt that within philosophy over the past like half century uh, in the English speaking world, there's been you know a huge surge of interest in the emotions. I mean, many more philosophers writing on the emotions since Oh, the 1960s, 1970s than we saw previously. Uh, so I think that you're right, probably historically, it has something to do with maybe the denigration or skepticism about the emotions. And grief is also, I think, a difficult emotion to theorize about, right? It seems to be much more kind of multifaceted than an emotion that's, you know, if you will, sort of more one-dimensional, like, you know, fear or something like that. But I also think there's another reason that philosophers kind of in the Western tradition in particular have stayed away from it, which is that they sort of viewed it as kind of a personal failure. <laughs> you know, if you look at what a lot of ancient philosophers have said about the question, their attitude seems to have been that maybe we have to grieve, but it's kind of shameful that we have to grieve. It sort of speaks to our limitations and our sort of vulnerability to events, you know, outside of ourselves. And if you think, as those philosophers did, that sort of the best human life is self-sufficient, right, kind of invulnerable to facts out in the world, then you're likely to see grief as kind of a marginal subject for philosophy because you really think of it as a kind of emblem of human limitations or even human failure. Is it, as opposed to the self-sufficiency, what grief implies is, as you wrote, that it suggests a response to others that might actually be a bit more associated as a feminine trait? I'm not saying that, it, that that's right, but that, that grief suggests a response to others instead of self-sufficiency and admitting that or going through that might not be terribly masculine. And is that why maybe a reason why it's been put to the side? Even though it's a human trait, not a masculine or feminine, it's human, but it's been associated as being feminine. So that's exactly right. Some of the philosophers that I was just referencing a moment ago, as I said, they are sort of skeptical about the significance of grief because it does speak to our interdependent vulnerability and their sort of goals of human virtue where we're self-sufficient and invulnerable. But it's interesting to note that some of those same philosophers express their skepticism about grief in gendered terms. I think the best example of this, to my eyes, is in Plato's Phaedo. This is the dialogue in which we are introduced to or, or experience, uh, you know, the death of Socrates dialogue. Socrates' followers and friends are gathered around him, and at a certain point, they're trying to keep their composure, but their sort of emotions well over as they know Socrates is going to be dying soon and so forth. And Socrates rebukes them and basically calls them a bunch of girly girls, more or less. Uh, what are you doing, all you blubbering women, you know? <laughs> You're certainly right to think that the antipathy toward grief as a philosophical subject has a lot of connections maybe with the sense that it's, it is very feminine or womanly. What does philosophy have to offer where maybe psychology doesn't or theology doesn't in terms of understanding grief? That's a good question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's a subject that's really extensively explored in other disciplines, right? I mean, there's a massive amount of literature in psychology, psychiatry, mental health on grief. It's like one of the, you know, core subjects, you know, in anthropology, right? Like that's one of the first things that field anthropologists often look at are rituals and beliefs surrounding grief. But I think that philosophy can do some things that these other disciplines can't. I think one thing that it can do is it can tell us how we should feel about it, or at least it should try to tell us how we should feel about it. I think grief raises questions that are uh, profoundly ethical. You know, I think 
think one of the key things that I investigate in my book is what I call the paradox of grief. The idea that on the one hand, grief is like this incredibly emotionally stressful or taxing thing. The grief that one feels at the death of one's spouse, according to some psychologists, is the most stressful event that you will undergo in your life. Right? It's the most emotionally taxing event that you'll undergo in your life. And at the same time, I think most of us, you know, when we think about grief, we would actually sort of say that a human life that had no grief or a human life in which someone managed to avoid grieving would not be a very good life. And my prime example of this is the protagonist of Camus' The Stranger. Marceau is a figure who seems unable to grieve. That famous first line, you know, mother died today, or maybe it was yesterday. It betokens a kind of indifference to, to the deaths of others that doesn't seem to be compatible with grieving. But I think what philosophy can give us then is some sense of, you know, how we might resolve this sense that on the one hand, grief is really difficult. It's the sort of thing that I don't think we want to avoid entirely. Something good about it, but it's a little hard to quite say what that is. And I also think philosophy can speak to what we might call sort of the morality of grief. How should we acknowledge other people's grief? How should, for example, institutions address people's grief? For example, medicine, you know, what are the obligations that institutions have to support people who are grieving? Uh, you know, we saw recently in the pandemic, I think, a lot of challenges arising, right, in that area. People unable to be with their loved ones as they die, or the Zoom funeral became the norm, right? People had to grieve at a distance. Certain kinds of rituals that are common in some cultures were not really possible. So washing the corpse is uh, something that happens in um, some cultures, and that really wasn't feasible, right, for pandemic deaths. So I think philosophy can speak also to the morality of grief in addition to sort of its, its significance to our well-being. I'm wondering if, since you mentioned Camus, something that really struck me about his work is this notion of, he says, breathing with the absurd. And if people respond to grief based on their notion of the way that the world is supposed to be ordered, but does somebody grieve differently if, let's say, somebody dies and they think they weren't supposed to? Or for example, like if a child dies and the parent is like, but they're not supposed to, that actually that notion of an ordered world that doesn't really exist according to Camus would create more problems with understanding grief. That's an excellent observation. My general position actually about grief is that it's in part a response to the sense that our world has been upended. So the way I understand grief we grieve those in whom we have invested what I call our practical identities. So the idea is that we have different individuals in our lives and come to play a role in different of our concerns and commitments and so on. We have spouses and siblings and parents and children and coworkers and friends and you know, political leaders and uh, revered artists and so forth. And we grieve these people when they die because we've invested our goals and concerns in their existence, right? So they play this indispensable role in our pursuing our day-to-day -day, uh, lives. So in some sense, right, grief is itself, I think, a, a reaction to the ways in which the deaths of others sort of up in the expectations that we've created for the world. I think what you're sort of underscoring is that it's probably doubly difficult or doubly challenging when the death at question, in question is the death of someone who, you know, is someone we don't expect to die, right, you know, anytime soon. And so there's sort of greater sense of upheaval, perhaps, with the grieving. Uh, you know, there's a sense in, of being caught perhaps more flat-footed or unprepared. I think it's remarkable that we grieve even though we sort of know that everyone is going to die. <laughs> sort of the deep and, and, and puzzling question that I've never, I, I've not yet satisf uh, given myself a satisfactory answer to. Uh, if we sort of know this fact about ourselves and others, why are we still sort of caught, I don't know, not quite unawares, but caught unready for their deaths? On that point, I mean, and, and to kind of piggyback on Gwen's excellent observation about the supposed to die versus those that we, you know, it, it's like, so it's just like, 
I've had a lot of young deaths in my life. I've, lo- I've had a lot of old deaths in my life. I've had a lot of relatives live until their 90s. And the reactions that I've had to those deaths was like, wow, good for them. They lived that long. They were healthy. They lived a great life. Then I've had friends and relatives die in their teens, their 20s, and their 30s. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm probably still not over those in many ways. Maybe it's because visually we have this idea of what death should look like. I mean, the body starts to kind of die over a long period of time as we get older and we start to look older and there's the graying process. Speak and, for yourself, and, Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm, there's I no graying I'm, here. No, there's, I was not. There's no sagging here. There's you're perpetually 25, but I, I think there, there's something about the visualization of it that when somebody looks young, yet you look at them in a coffin and you're just looking at a young dead person. It's one of the worst things that you can see in your life. Unfortunately, I've seen it many times. Like, so my question, I mean, I went on a soliloquy here. My question is, is so how do we, how could we possibly even prepare for something like that? I mean, how do you prepare for you can die at any time? Do you just think, thank God every single day that you have on earth and that you're with these people or or what do you do? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, you're the expert on grief, uh, Michael. So tell me what to do. Well, so to be clear that, you know, you're not really asking me a question about grief. You're asking me sort of about whether we can be uh, in a position to avoid grieving. And I guess my own feeling is that the answer is no, right? Uh, If we were completely prepared for other people's death, then perhaps we wouldn't grieve. I think one interesting thing about what you were saying, Rudy, is to kind of reflect upon the sort of cultural situatedness, you know, to to be fancy about it, of our beliefs and attitudes about death and mortality. I think one thing that's been particularly upsetting to people, right, about, again, you know, a lot of deaths in the pandemic is that many of the people who died, have died, will continue to die, are not aged. I mean, many of them were, but many of them, you know, were 30s, 40s, 50s, not people who we would ordinarily expect to die at those ages. But that's a shock to our our systems, I would say, shock to our own emotional systems. But it wouldn't have been a shock to say, you know, 100 or 150 years ago, you know, when infant mortality was very high, when plenty of children, you know, died at the young age, when many women would die in the course of childbirth before they were 30 years old, 40 years old, something like that. So I also think it's worth sort of keeping in mind the extent to which if grief is kind of a response to our jarred expectations about people's living and dying, that those expectations can, you know, shift and change over time in response to, you know, social and technological conditions. I think, what, again, one of the things that made the pandemic so shocking to many people is just how the deaths of the pandemic were very different from our expectations about how death takes place now. People dying pretty quickly, not from chronic illnesses that sort of wear away at you over months and years, uh, you know, dying quickly from infectious diseases at almost any age. That's very different from our standard, you know, sort of culturally uh, typical mode of dying nowadays. I think one of the reasons why I was interested in the distinction between philosophy and theology here is because as I was looking at your work, I went through, um, so I grew up in a Catholic school, Catholic household. And when I was young, my father passed away. The theological response to that is like, oh, he's in a better place. He's in heaven, happiness with God, you know, shit like that. It doesn't address the grieving. And so for me, that is no different than saying your father went to Maine. He's really happy there. You will never see or talk to him again, but just trust me. He's... (laughs) 
he's really happy in Maine and you should be happy that he has found this new existence in Maine. So the thing is that what I think a lot of, from a theological point of view, what has been addressed is the person who has died and what their existence is instead of how we are supposed to understand our lives after that. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that, about a theology versus, let's say, a I, I do. I mean, I think one of the things that I think of as a theoretical advantage of the views that I defend in my book is that I think it makes sense of the essential features of grief, whether or not a person believes in the afterlife or not. So the view that I defend is that what's going on when we're grieving is that we are adapting our relationship to someone who was alive and is now deceased. The relationship doesn't end in most cases. We continue to relate to the deceased in various sorts of ways. They continue to influence us in various sorts of ways. And so part of what we're trying to do when we're grieving, we may not recognize this, but part of what we're trying to do is that we are trying to adapt our relationship with a person who is now deceased on the supposition that the relationship can't continue in the way it was. I mean, whatever else you can say about death, it's going to change how you relate to someone else. I think you're right to point out that some theological mindsets have maybe not been very helpful in telling bereaved people how to go about that adaptation. They just sort of focus on, you know, sort of the deceased. But I think, again, it's an advantage of the views that I defend, that whether or not you believe that your loved one, you know, continues to exist or not, you have to adapt to a a significant change in the relationship. That change is going to differ, right, if you actually believe in the afterlife. There's some sense in which you believe that they continue to exist in some other guise or form or realm, whereas if you sort of believe that death is the cessation of the person, then, you know, obviously you're going to relate to to them differently than if you believe that they continue to exist again in some other realm or form. I think you're exactly right to say that some of these theological reassurances are, maybe from the standpoint of a grieving person, a bit beside the point. Yeah, beside the point. I I think, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to get some pushback for this, but I think that looking at the corpse is creepy. And I remember when my father passed away, I told myself, I am not going to look. I'm not going to do it. Is there a helpfulness or a reason to looking at is that part of the grieving process? Do you know anything about what it that what is that for? Is it really helpful to see a person yeah. dead? I doubt there's a universal truth about whether people benefit from that. As you say, you know, some people may find it creepy. On the other hand, there are certainly a lot of cultural traditions that put a lot of emphasis on contacts between the bereaved person and the corpse. So uh, Judaic traditions, Islamic traditions, where the body is on display for a significant period of time, or it's washed by the family, right? That's another aspect of of that experience. A woman who lives in in Los Angeles, uh, what is her name? Caitlin Dowdy. Some of you may uh, out there may know about her. She has a podcast. She's a, a mortician, and she wrote a book a couple of years back in which she talks about practices throughout the world where people keep corpses, you know, in their houses for several weeks after they're dead, or they disinter the body once buried, you know, on an annual basis and, you know, keep it in the dwelling and so forth. So again, I think part of this might go back to something I was saying, you know, to Rudy earlier. A lot of this, I think, is like culturally inculcated attitudes towards mortality and death. I do think that those who think that this is a valuable experience to be in contact with the corpse or to see it, I think part of it maybe is that that's like a transitional experience. So they were alive. At some point in the future, they will be buried or cremated or whatever the procedure will be. And I think for some people, it has an important role in not sort of leaving this gap between those things. 
I think for some people, you know, seeing the corpse and dealing with the body is a way to sort of manage kind of the abruptness or seeming abruptness of, of dealing with the death of others, right? Sort of here they are one day and tomorrow they're just sort of in persona at least gone. I think that being in contact with the corpse can be, for some people at least, a psychologically useful stage in grieving to sort of reduce that sense of it's being so abrupt. I couldn't agree more. Like I said, I've had a lot of young um, family relatives, et cetera, people that have died very, very young. And, and but for seeing the corpse or seeing uh, the cremated remains in an urn and being a part of that process, there's something about in this crazy world today where you're supposed to be on 24-7 and, you know, work-life work, work life balance, you, know, you never separate it. There is something about being able to tell people, hey, somebody really important to me died. I need time. And it's kind of crazy because people will be like, oh, okay, I will not bother you. My problems, my demands are not as important right now. You need to go through this. So it's, there, there's something like it's important to go through that process because I've been through it so many, so many times. The interesting thing is it's kind of, this is something that, look, I, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but something that I've been thinking about a lot. We have this housing crisis in California. And, and sometimes I, I drive by cemeteries and those cemeteries are in like really, I mean, quite frankly, prime real estate. And I just, I kind of think about that. You know, I mean, obviously I have, we all have a lot of relatives in cemeteries and I wonder how often do they go to the cemetery? I mean, sure, maybe they go on Memorial Day or they go on somebody's birthday and they feel that connection, but it's kind of like this like balance. In the future, right, when we run out of even more real estate, you know, will there be a limitation? Like, will there be a certain amount of people that have to get cremated? It's just kind of stuff that I would like think about. I know that's a little kind of off the wall, Michael, but yeah, I don't know if you've ever come across anything that, dis that dis discusses that. I think there is actually scholarly work that engages with these sorts of questions. I mean, you were talking about, you know, there being a real estate crisis. I mean, I think there's already a real estate crisis in some communities throughout the world with respect to, to burying the dead. So it's become a lot more expensive to bury your loved ones. And one of the reasons it's become more expensive is that there's often not a lot of space for doing this, particularly space that's proximate to, to population centers. And just as some of the prime real estate in Southern California, as you say, is, is occupied by dead people, it's true here in Edinburgh, Scotland, too. There are very old graveyards, you know, sitting right next to very popular restaurant districts and, and theater districts and so forth. And it, it seems to me that many cultures think of the dead as deserving kind of reverence, that we wouldn't think of destroying a graveyard or something like that. But it's become more expensive. And that's one of the factors that I think is um, behind the sort of steady rise in cremation as a practice, right? Certainly in the United States, UK, much of Europe, cremation is becoming more and more of the norm. So, you know, it's a resource issue. That just, I think, underlies a point that is important, which is that the dead sort of continue to make claims on us from the grave and claiming a bit of land, claiming a bit of real estate, uh, sort of forever and in, and in perpetuity is a pretty big claim to make. <laughs> I do wonder whether it's a claim that we will think forever and ever needs to be honored. I think people are exploring alternatives. Cremation is one. And also, you know, there's definitely been a, a, a surge of interest in different kinds of alternative interments and burials, you know, green burials, you know, people being mixed into potting soil, <laughs> you know, buried under trees in, in national forests and so forth. And I think that reflects 
you know, some changes maybe in people's values and in maybe their relationship to the natural world. I mean, one other thing to say about traditional burialists in the U.S. is it's also pretty environmentally terrible, right? You're putting a shellacked wooden and, and steel box in the ground with someone who's perfused with a bunch of pretty nasty toxins to, to preserve their body for a while. So I think those who think of themselves as good environmental citizens are kind of rethinking burial too. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's a you know, it's like the greening of death, right? We have we was, I, I'm a transportation person, and so I always talk about the greening of transportation and moving away from cars. This is really fascinating. I'm sorry, Michael. I, obviously, I, I try to avoid grief and death. I'm not somebody that can <laughs> deal with it very well. I didn't even really know that there was you know already these discussions. Of course, there are. Like how how silly how silly of me to think yeah. that there are not. But perhaps as we are focused more in the world on this topic, it'll become to the forefront and maybe. You know, maybe, maybe this is a topic that, yep. you know, that we all need to start talking about with our wives and our parents and, and, and like, you know, sooner rather than later. It's really making me yep. rethink a lot of things about, you know, planning for the inevitable. I mean, I personally, Michael, if you've ever listened to any of these shows, by the way, I don't plan to die. <laughs> I'm planning Rudy's to afraid of death. A very, he's very, he's going to put his mind very, in a computer. Very afraid. Live forever. And I'm going to live forever. Rudy, okay, you're going to nobody wants forever. to live forever. I want to you live forever. You would live everybody, and you would experience it's, more grief. That you, you know what? Yeah, you maybe, maybe that is. You know what? But, <laughs> what I, do you mean, maybe? This, it's a topic if you're the for only one show. who's living, okay. But I told you, one of the classic questions of the philosophy of death and dying. You know, you know. Whether immortality would be good for us, and and whether you know it'd be good for us if if it were uh, the province of only us and not others, right? Uh, that children's book Tuck Everlasting is about that. You know, you've got this small group of kids who a family that are immortal and the rest of the world isn't, and it, it's a rough world. But I mean, people are definitely, I think, I hate to use the corporate speak, but they're definitely innovating around death and internment these days, right? I mean, there's the greening stuff, more people wanting to be tossed into the ocean, you know, burial in the ocean, and one of the more interesting ones is I think there's a company in New Hampshire or something that will cremate you and then mix your ashes into fireworks. At some point, you could oh, be you could be shot in there and you know explode on Fourth of July or something. Rudy's a lawyer. Rudy, you can put that in writing, okay? That's what I want. I want fireworks. I want to be a firework. You know, listen. I mean, if you could ever progress past the age of twenty-five, I mean, yes, you should. You should go out with a bang. You're gonna stay twenty-five. I'm gonna live forever. I just yes. No, I, I know this sounds silly, Michael, but this topic, this show, is something. Uh, look, I'm immature when it comes to facing death, and, and I don't know if any things ever going to prepare me for it. Perhaps your book will. I don't know what, what the answer is. Something needs to happen. No, 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 I don't want anything to happen. Dear God, no, please do not strike me down or anything like that. Don't do that. But, but I mean, I mean, I do need to start dealing with this. So I struggle with this. And what's crazy about it is if I'm gone, I'm not going to grieve. I guess I'm so worried about the world going on without me. Does that make sense to anybody? There was a joke when I was supposed well, to. Yeah, okay, I will <laughs> no, grieve no. you. Well, there's the novel All Men Are Mortal by Simone de Beauvoir. And it's always yeah. struck me there is this point where she's, there's a character who decides to, you know, takes a potion and lives forever. But by doing that, it erases so many things that make us human. So that character, for example, can never experience courage because that means risking your life. And that's a very human right. thing. And there was also, he couldn't be in love really because it would eradicate any kind of asymmetry in a relationship. 
And something I really appreciated about All Men Are Mortal is that by putting a bit of a time limit on us, it actually seems to have made us more aware of what it is that makes us human and celebrate those human things. I'm very sympathetic to the sentiments that you're expressing. It's a really heated area of discussion in philosophy of death and dying, right? Whether it would be desirable for us to be immortal. I think I'm of the school that sort of thinks of that as kind of like a category mistake, that imagining us, we human beings as immortal, is actually just to imagine another kind of creature altogether. It's a little like, would it be good for a frog to go to college or, you know, an ant to run for president or something? I mean, they're just, it's in some sense almost a nonsensical question. So, you know, I think you're right to say that our finitude and the fact of our mortality is a cornerstone feature, I would say, of human life, right? I mean, there are people who work on this subject in psychology, the so-called terror management theorists. I don't know if you've heard about those folks, but you know, they basically think that almost all of human culture can be understood as an attempt to grapple with, with mortality, uh, you know, religion and, you know, wanting posthumous fame and national identity and all these other sorts of features of, of human life are our attempt to grapple with the shortness, the brevity, right, of human existence and to sort of make our lives seem more greater magnitude, right? Give them sort of greater significance than they would otherwise have. Um, I guess what I'd say, Rudy, is if, if you have the opportunity to enroll at the University of Edinburgh, I'm teaching philosophy of death and dying next semester. And, uh, you know, these are many of the questions that we wrestle with. Just what should we think about this fact that we're mortal? I think one of the things that is challenging there is just that maybe we don't give ourselves enough options in terms of thinking about how to relate to it. I think the question people often pose to themselves is, does it make sense to fear death? I think one of the things that maybe makes that question not as helpful as it could be is that we haven't really considered what some other options might be besides fear. If not fear, well, then what? Well, okay, okay. So, so okay. To, to be fair, yeah. If you if you offer your class online for Zoom, I will I will sign up for a degree at the University of Edinburgh. But but wait a minute. Okay, wait. Hold on. What are what are the other options that you even discuss, Michael? I mean, I, I do, what are the other options? Well, I mean, there is the point of view that if what we're deciding between is death, which means being mortal and being immortal, there is the point of view that says that being immortal would itself be terrible. Some philosophers believe that it would be tedious, it would be eventually a kind of meaningless life. If you were one of the few immortals, you'd outlive uh, many other people, and that would be deeply saddening. You'd have many, many episodes of grief. So one way to look at that is to say that if you're bemoaning your mortality, keep in mind that maybe the alternative isn't so great. And so maybe a kind of measured appreciation for mortality as the better of two admittedly imperfect options might be the right way, way to take it. I also think it's possible for us to have a kind of wariness about death or a mindfulness about death that is nevertheless not fear. I like to tell students, you know, I don't think we should live in the shadow of death. I think we should live in the light of death. We should be mindful of the fact that we're mortal and the ways in which it shapes our consciousness and the ways in which it puts a kind of time stamp on what our lives can be like. And I don't think that necessarily means that we have to live with fear. And of course, there's also the old, you know, Epicurean point of view, which simply says, what are you afraid of, Rudy? It probably won't be a state that you will undergo, right? It's simply a state in which you are not. It's difficult to understand such a state, difficult to conceptualize it. A world, as you were saying, that doesn't contain you, but it's not a world that's bad for you, according to the Epicurean. It's just a world without you. And of course, there was a world without you. I mean, your parents know about it. It was the world before you existed. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that, I mean, that, that concept is, I see, I'm not smarter. First of all, I'm not smart enough to think about type of stuff. That's the first thing. The second thing is, okay, I'm loving what you're saying. You're really making me think a lot about what I just accomplished. So the reason why I'm calling from a hotel room, Michael, and the reason why you're not seeing my great hair on the video camera is because I'm in a, uh, I'm in a hotel room right at the base of Mount Whitney, which is the tallest mountain 
in the contiguous uh, United States. And, you know, last night I was thinking about driving home, but some, but my, my wife and others were like, you're crazy. You will die driving home. Go get a hotel room. That's not mm -hmm. my point. My point is leading up to this hike, I was deathly afraid of it because, you know, several people do die on, on this mountain. I've never camped before. I've never been up that high. If I was a mortal, would it feel like that much of an accomplishment? Like, I guess I've never really thought about it that way. It's because of the specter of death um, that, you know, kind of adds that, wow, I, I did something. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, you could, you, I mean, perhaps you can get injured and be immortal and maybe that would be like the worst thing ever, you know, if you could move or something, but that's a whole other topic. But I see your point without death. I mean, things like that really don't mean that much, right? Is that, is that what you're saying? I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm going to sign on the dotted line on those particular positions, but I will say that it's a pretty common position in philosophy to believe that death is a kind of framework for human existence, right? It provides a kind of background framework for almost everything that we do. I mean, think about what people say when they marry, till death do us part, right? I mean, what would immortals say? I don't know, till never, I don't know. I mean, maybe they wouldn't even get married, right? Imagine being married to the same person for trillions upon trillions of years or something. But that's just another well, Mike, example, Michael, right? Did, of, Matt, Michael, Michael, we actually, we actually <laughs> talked about that on an episode, but uh, we literally okay. talked about that very topic. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just go on, I'm sorry. No, no, but I, mean, I, I think that's just a really good example of the ways in which our mortality does seem to serve as this kind of background ethical frame for our personal choices, for how we organize our societies. I mean, we think of extending, you know, people's lifespans, right? You know, have a society having a longer lifespan, we think of that as a good thing. We sort of allow people to evade death a bit longer. Probably you've seen that because of COVID over the last two years, these are the first two years and I can't remember, 75 or something like that, when median lifespan in the United States actually declined. But we do live with some tacit understanding of the fact that we're mortal. And I don't think we have a choice but to live with that tacit understanding, right? We've got to, I think, adopt some stance toward it. And I think one of the difficulties, again, that, that we face maybe is that in the wider culture, maybe culture outside of you know, the work that I do in philosophy, for example, people just don't entertain many possibilities besides sort of like, I don't know, fear and blithe indifference. But surely there's got to be a lot of other options besides those two. Uh, a sort of, you know, determined, uh, you know, resignation, I think, is one possibility, right? To sort of say, you know, I know that, that this finite existence is finite, and I won't be able to milk it forever, but doggone it, I'm going to absolutely make the most of it. I think that's a plausible and somewhat admirable attitude. I think, you know, an attitude that says that the important thing is perhaps appreciate the existence we've got, to not try to, to make it necessarily the most accomplished or, or the, uh, the most monumental or heroic, but simply to appreciate ordinary things in life. That's another point of view that I can appreciate. But yeah, I mean, I think in the background of a lot of what human beings do individually and, and socially is an awareness of our mortality. I mean, other animals die, but I think it's debatable that they know that they do, whereas we learn early on in life that we do. And I don't think we forget. We ignore it sometimes, but I don't think we actually forget. Given the cultural differences around the world, is there some universal when it comes to it? And is there such a thing as a right or a wrong way to grieve? Well, I mean, I think, or well, I hope, in my book, I've, I've managed to home in on what I think of as the universal nature of grief that nevertheless accommodates wide variations in how it's going to play out in different societies. Again, my thought is that what we're doing when we're grieving is we're trying to adapt to a loss of a relationship that we had with someone, and we're trying to sort of found a new relationship with them, right, or a relationship on new terms. And that seems to me is something that 
you know, um, is plausible or credible as a story of what people are doing when they grieve in Canada, as when they grieve in Chile, as when they grieve in China. I'm open to being disproven about this, but it seems to me that it, it seems, you know, sufficiently generic or broad enough, right, to encompass grief experiences that people would have anywhere. As far as right and wrong, I mean, there's kind of two different questions there, right? Sort of one question is like morally right or wrong. I and mean, I think there is a very interesting question whether there might be some individuals that we ought not grieve. So, you know, um, I like to point out to students that public figures are often grieved, and some of the public figures that are grieved are not particularly morally admirable, right? I mean, you think about, you know, how people in the Soviet Union reacted to the death of Stalin, you know, all these people, <laughs> you know, coming to see his corpse and, you know, this revered figure. Now, admittedly, some of those people maybe didn't really know what Stalin was all about. After all, the Soviet propaganda machine was pretty effective in some respects. But, you know, should we be grieving people who were morally odious? I think that's an interesting question. As far as sort of right or wrong, like at the level of the individual, what I argue in my book is I think that we have a kind of duty to ourselves to grieve, right? We kind of owe it to ourselves to grieve. That if we don't grieve, there's a sense in which we're kind of saying to ourselves, I want to live in the past with respect to my relationship with this deceased person. And you're in a way sort of not updating your own self-conception to take into account the fact that this person with whom you had a meaningful relationship of some kind is now dead, right? And your relationship with them can't continue in just the same way. I do think that grief has a good that's distinctive to it, right? A kind of self-understanding or self-knowledge that can result from it. I'm not really big on criticizing people for how they grieve, on the other hand. I, I think, you know, we need to distinguish the question of, you know, what's good or bad in grief from what's good or bad in how others treat the grieving, because those seem to me to sort of cleave in different directions. I really like that. I think one of my questions was when philosophers present an analysis, sometimes um, one of the questions is, what is the consequence to not taking this into account? And I think that's interesting. You said you're living in the past. You're not moving on. You had written that there should be a gratitude that accompanies grief. Could you expand on that? Well, I think we should be grateful for the opportunity to grieve. I mean, it seems to me that one of the mistakes that we can sometimes make because grief is, as I was saying earlier in our conversation, emotionally arduous and taxing. I think we can sometimes mistake grief for what grief is a response to. Grief is a good thing. Grief is a tool that allows us to figure out how to continue our lives, given that something or someone rather on whom we were perhaps dependent in some way, well, we can't depend upon them in just that same way. They can't play the same role in our lives that they did before. But because grief feels bad, right, we think that grief is the problem. Grief's not the problem, right? Grief, grief is in some ways a sign of good psychic health. A person who didn't respond to the significant losses that people ordinarily grieve would, I think, if you will, have sort of an emotionally defective immune system, right? They're not responding to the reality uh, in the right sort of way. So I think that we should be grateful that we have grief. It's a tool to allow us to continue to live our lives in light of the fact that other people are mortal. This doesn't mean that it always leads us to where we might want to take us. I think some people just live maybe long periods of their life with what we might call unresolved grieving. I think that does happen. But there, I'm not sure grief is the problem. It's really that, again, it's a tool. And one of the things that I hope that people could get from my book and maybe from other intellectual resources and maybe from therapists and so on are ways of figuring out how to put that grief to use. That's really good. A tool. It's not the problem. But that's why we want to avoid it. I really like that. Rudy, do you have any more questions? Are you still afraid of death or how are we doing? 
I, you know, I feel like I need to, on this long drive back to Los Angeles through the desert, I'm definitely going to be thinking a lot about this. This is, this has been very, very, very helpful. I mean, it's like basically without death, is there, and the possibility of it, you know, what meaning is there to life? I know grief is the topic and how we deal with grief um, is one of the primary things that Michael teaches about. And I mean, I think under underlying grief, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can divorce death from that because, you know, sure. death of a relationship. And even if the person is still alive, you know, you're going to yeah. grieve the death of that relationship. And yeah. it's just, yeah, there's, there's just a lot to think about and unpack here. I think this was really, really helpful for me personally. So I'm, I'm hopeful that others will get a lot out of it too. I mean, so Michael, seriously, thank you for focusing on this. Thank you for the book. Thank you for being able to talk about this in, a, in as about as objective way as humanly possible, because I think we all need this. I appreciate that. I think it's possible for philosophy to be hard-headed but warm-hearted, to apply serious intellectual tools to things that, you know, as Gwendolyn was, was mentioning early in the conversation, maybe feel a bit emotionally squishy to people, but I think philosophy has something to provide there. So, so I appreciate those comments. And I think, Rudy, in terms of, you know, apprehension about death, if I can give some reassurance or solace, the, the cover art for my book is by a Japanese artist named Moto Yamamoto, and he creates these installations that were kind of inspired by his own sister's death from cancer in her 20s. And they're installations where he makes these complex sort of grid or maze-like patterns. He makes them out of salt. Once the installation is done at a museum, he invites people to come to the museum and take the salt and throw it into the sea. And so I think if you're worried about death, Rudy, one perhaps source of solace is for mine, uh, yourself, and, and you know, and others you you encounter that you know, in some sense, we all go back to the sea, right? We all sort of you know end up back where humanity started. That's a lovely vision of what ultimately our fate is. I think. Yeah. Now I want to get transferred to a computer. Yeah. When you put it that when I you put it that way, Michael I think I, was gonna 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 I think uh, you know what I'm calling a computer technician Damn, I made again. It, damn, I made it worse. I made it worse. Yeah. Uh, I uh, this is going to be a long, depressing drive through the desert. Thank you, Michael. I uh, I appreciate that. I aim to please. <laughs> Um, Michael, what is your what is your Twitter handle so people can uh, get that Michael you? Cholby, no no spaces, capital M, capital C, no spaces. Okay, and then I'll link your website. Where is your book available? If you just Google the title, which is Grief, a Philosophical Guide, you should find it on the Princeton University Press website. I think you should be able to actually get the electronic text very, very soon, like in the next, I don't know, several weeks, but then actual paper versions in January. So yeah, something to come out of the holidays. That's perfect. Michael, dark, thank man. you so dark, much. Dark, dark. Very, very dark, Michael. Thank you, thank you, Michael. Really, seriously, I'm going to get a copy of this book, and I'm going to curl up, and uh, hopefully it'll make me feel better, not worse. I'd like to think so. I believe it will. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening, and please check out our show notes so that you can learn more about Michael's work. And we also have our Patreon link there. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash details. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review. If you would like to sponsor a show or if you have any questions, we're at goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook, goodisinthedetailspod. Okay. Until next time, bye. Or are you done? <laughs>